the Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and Mm -hmm. entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which is super fun. It is very fun. That's where all the good stories live. It does, it does. Yes. Well, I mean, the good stories also live on the podcast, but right. some of the stories that don't necessarily need to be on the podcast live in the uh, Facebook group, so, yes. you know. And sometimes we do fun stuff online and you get invited to watch creepy things with us. Also true. So join. Is, wait, is that tonight? Tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> yay <laughs> <clears throat> in a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep next to rusty old needles and faded red thread you'll come in for yarn but leave with pigments instead Whether poisons or patterns were always discreet, where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merely morbid. Marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 1, Episode 17, Step Into the Spirit Cabinet, Medium Frauds and Cottingly Fairies. Hi, I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official murderino maker. Yay! Hey! Yeah, so what's going on with you this week? So, hi! The week just started, but it's it started out intense, man. It's it's an eclipse today. Yep, yep, yep. And then, yeah, we had all, all kinds of stuff going on right now. Plus, you add, like, winter time, holiday time. COVID uh, time. God, the COVID numbers are frightening. Uh, yeah. We just got an email from Evers this morning uh, letting us know that our all of our hospitals across the state are pretty much at 90% capacity right now. Um, yeah. It's a little frightening out there, to say the least. I but understand. But it's also, like, a super rough time to begin with. Um, so I just, I wanted to let everybody listening know that you're, you're not alone. Nope. Like, we... We get it. We totally get it. We're huge mental health advocates. And very well um, medicated. <laughs> right. I'm super medicated right now. I'm oh, not yeah. ashamed of that. Um, I had to actually pop a Xanax earlier. So I'm just like. Ooh, then okay. you're very nice right now. <laughs> I am. I am nice and just mellow right now. I'm but, happy for uh, you. 
Thank you. <laughs> but if you feel that you need somebody to talk to, uh, you can call 1-800-273-TALK, which is H255. Um, and you can speak with a 24-hour crisis counselor um, who can help guide you to resources in your area that are available. Mm-hmm. You can reach out to us um, and we'll chat at you if we're around. Um, yeah. And if we're you... We're not experts, I know this time but we're here. Years, no. We're totally here. Like, we've got your back because it's tough. It's tough. And sometimes it's hard to know who do you... Who do you to reach out to sometimes you feel like oh well everybody that i know already has so much going on in my life in their lives i don't want to add to it but you're worthy and you aren't adding to it you have every right to reach out and sometimes it's easy to reach out to somebody maybe that you're not close to for those reasons but yep reach out if you're super like just not doing good with being locked inside and you're out of things to do or you need something new to keep your mind occupied let us know if you want to learn a craft like we will schedule like an online craft (laughs) it's true or a hangout session maybe you know like i'm not saying that we're gonna like you know there could be a stitching bitch involved but yeah we can uh we can work on something if we can just help because it's it's a tough time of year and it is we acknowledge that and we get that and we're here and it's super fine if you are not okay because neither are we right right Oh, yeah. In fact, I think it's good that we're not okay because none of this is fucking okay. Like, uh-huh. That, <laughs> we, we, that is a very like, fair point. Uh, so, yeah. So, I guess that, that's been on my mind a lot is that it's a tough time. Um, I've had uh, I've had just a lot of people losing a lot of people um, this last week. Yeah. Um, I know people that have uh, lost their lives to COVID. I know people whose uh, children have lost their struggle with depression. Um, yeah. It's just a really heartbreaking time and difficult time. So I just want to take that little time and be like, hey, you fucking rock and we're here for you. Call the number. Poke us on the internet. Yep. You know, pick up a crochet hook and some yarn. It actually helps. Um, yep. You know. Absolutely. Or needlepoint, but that gets like stabby, stabby, pointy, pointy. Um, which, you know, bloodshed, where you can't really poke an eye out with a crochet hook. Um, yeah, you could. And I, you could. You could. Abs- that would be the best tool for poking Oh, no, an eye it's out. totally good for, like, yeah, like, I'm sure the Egyptians would have loved to have that to scoop up. I mean, if you, like, especially a Tunisian one, oh. yeah, that would work. But I'm saying if you're using it intentionally as a weapon, you could absolutely... But I think that between knitting and crocheting <laughs> and, and of all of the needle-ish arts, like that's probably the safest one, I think, in terms of accidental self-impalement, which is something that I worry about on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm just that, saying. There's such a thing as sitting on DPNs. Oh, I fell asleep <clears> with uh, sock my hair. needles. My hair wrapped up in a, I had it secured oh, no. with knitting needles. Woke up in the middle of the night with one stabbing me in the neck, and thankfully they are bamboo, so they weren't super sharp. But I was like, "That's, that's." I, I'm gonna end up going in some ridiculously comedic way, and that would be fairly on point for me if I would have accidentally uh-huh, impaled on my point. own. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, hey, dad joke. <laughs> exactly. So how are um, you? That's my that's my thing. How are you doing? Yeah. 
Uh, well, uh, my mom is recovering from COVID currently. Yeah. And I hadn't decided if I was going to share that or not. I still may ask you to remove it. I don't know. Um, but uh, that is happening and uh, seems to be going in the right direction. So That's that good. is that is good. But the last couple of weeks have been a roller coaster. So um, yeah. And with that, um, or I guess with sort of the second wave coming to New York and all of the like stress and emotion around that plus the holidays and stuff that means that the very 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 old building I live in and the ghosts that chill there are really really excitable right now and so <laughs> they've lost their chill yeah well my kitchen ghost just is, oh, uh, and this one is just a repeating energy. It's not interactive at all. But I'm telling you, every time I do the dishes, it walks behind me like, excuse me. I just need <laughs> to not have heavy footsteps behind me. But kitchen ghost doesn't care because kitchen ghost has no idea I exist. Kitchen Um, ghosts don't give a fuck. No, no, much like honey badgers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Zero ghosts fucks given. Yeah, and there's a a ghost choir that I only hear every once in a while. I live um, in front of a historic church that was Um. an underground railroad stop. And I, oh, I think I've mentioned that history. before. Yep. Um, and there are tunnels under my building that connect to tunnels there. And well, there are just tunnels everywhere because New York City. Um, yep. But for reasons unclear to me, um, th- this is not a Catholic church, but the choir sings in Latin. <laughs> oh, I, I think Alrighty it could then. be Italian, um, but it's it's just beautiful. It's a choir that it, it's just ethereal and lovely. No bad feelings with it, and I have walked around the block to see if I could figure out where it was coming from and see <laughs> if I could find a source that wasn't the mysteriously empty church behind me. No, it's coming from there. There gotcha. are not lights. but And I don't know why it would be in Latin, but it sure is beautiful. And so it is. they've been stepping yeah. it up. I've, been, I've nice. heard them. I usually hear them maybe not even monthly, but I've heard them multiple times this week. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently all of the energy is going to that. Um, so if you're new here, uh, <laughs> I, uh, see and talk to dead people. So there you go. There you go. Yep. That, that would be a, uh, a maternal trait passed down, shockingly, on my mother's side. 
What with it being a maternal maternal trait. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so that's that's what's going on with me. Lots of ghosts. Oh, and the ghost cat. The ghost cat in my apartment. There's a ghost cat. Do the uh, do the uh, do the cat see the ghost cat or sense the ghost cat? Yeah, but they don't seem to care. Um, But it is a. It's not one of my cats. Um, and it has been here as long as, as we have, which is going on 15, 16 years. Um, and it is gray and fluffy, and every once in a while I see it out of the corner of my eye. Once I saw it dead on. I did not mean to make that joke, but I did. (laughs) So there we go. But I've been seeing that cat everywhere, and I have three cats in the apartment now. And so I keep assuming that it's one of my cats, except that none of my cats are gray. I have two black cats and a tortie. Yeah. Who is orange and black. (laughs) Yep, no gray. eh, Not a gray to be found. But whatever, that's cool. I like ghost cat. Ghost cat does cat things. That's pretty awesome. Yep. So, so now would be a good time to take a quick little break and thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. Yes. And give a totally normal and not at all creepy um, welcome to new people that may join us. We don't have any new people this week, which is a rare thing. Yes, um, but that's but okay. Appreci- right, it's okay. It does make a good gift. Um, for the weirdos in your life that you don't know what to get. If they're slightly creepy or crafty and creepy and crafty, then uh, Patreon would be a good gift for them. Um, that is but true. we totally have the best, like the best Curiosity Shop members. They are freaking amazing. Yes. If we go, hey, give us a story, it's there. It is I there. I have never it's- seen such fast responses from... From listeners to yes. any podcast, so, um, so we love you guys. Nice, it's such a nice little weird family, and there's no drama, and it's people are excited to show off. Like, and there's like follow up. Like, if you listen, oh, if you listen to our last episode or like two episodes ago, yep, one of our episodes, last episode, uh, like they follow up. Like we hear. We hear and they're like, hey, here's a photo of the thing I sent you the thing about. And then you're like, that's really amazing. And it's super fun. And if you want to know what that thing, that thing that they took sent us the photo of and that we talked about is, then join. Honestly, there All have the been cool multiple of it. those things. One of them is <laughs> right. a historical anal- um, uh, anomaly. There we go. Yes. I can't talk. Yes. So, you know, I, let's professionally talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, we just want you to know, darling Patreon supporters, yes. you're the best. And the best. we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you in winter. And, like, yes. I'm an indoor cat. <laughs> in a Wisconsin winter at that. And <laughs> we, I would stop and sing Latin churchy songs with you if I knew the words. I mean, I am sure that we could come up with a Latin hymn pretty easily. Actually, uh, 
the former growing up best friend who is Catholic, their mass, every once in a while they would go down to this mass that was all in Latin. And that one I like to go to because for some reason, shit just sounds way cooler in Latin. Oh, yes. I've definitely been to Latin mass with my very Catholic <laughs> best friend of youth. Um, but yes, so yeah. that's fun. And if you are lucky enough to get a hymn in minor keys, then everything sounds haunted. So, yes, just saying. <laughs> anyway, uh, so <laughs> this episode, we are going to be talking first about uh, spiritualist mediums and the frauds that they perpetrated. And so I want to start out by saying not all mediums are fraudulent. And even the ones who are caught doing fraudulent things aren't necessarily themselves incapable of communicating. But you know what? You don't get to tell ghosts when to show up. You just don't. Or what to say. Yep. And so once you get famous for that being your thing there's pressure for it to happen every time so i totally get this although that said there are some just deeply batshit things that uh that have happened in the name of mediumship (laughs) (laughs) okay so what are spirit spirit what are spirit mediums, you may be wondering. <laughs> I don't know what spirit mediums are. Um, no, but I'm sure we'll get a message. <laughs> oh, yes, please. Please tell me what a spirit medium is. <laughs> I anxiously await your definition. We'll submit it to Oxford. It'll be great. Um, so mediumship, to put it simply, is the practice through which the living can contact and communicate with the dead. Um, and spiritualists, specifically, call these consciousnesses disincarnate humans, which might be my favorite not-sexy way to refer to a ghost that has ever happened disincarnate I mean I like it uh, fair enough it really does say all you need to know but yeah uh, yeah. so anyway the type of mediumship that I'm focusing on today is that which is related to specifically spiritualism and the spiritualist church in the 19th and early 20th centuries there are Many, many, many different mediumship cultures, modern, all over the world. So narrowing it down to just this one little part is really the only way that it's tackleable. And even then, there's just, like, there are so many people that you couldn't really cover everything that you might want to cover like this is a a book sort of topic Mm -hmm. if you really wanted to dive in and i'm sure many people have where are the cliff notes yes exactly exactly (laughs) um okay so there are different ways that 
in the spiritualist tradition, spirits can communicate through mediums. One is like the usual that you see in horror stories, which is suddenly a different voice coming out of a person's <laughs> mouth. End of the world. It's a demon. Um, except that it's not a demon here. And a medium could hear or sense something. That is more along the lines of clairvoyance. And what we're really focusing on today is physical mediumship. In physical mediumship, a spirit might show up in the form of detectable light or by sight, um, touch, smell, I suppose, or sound. Uh, presumably not taste, because I just, let's, you'll see later. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but most of these gatherings of spirit mediums, which were called seances, took place in either almost complete dark or very low candlelight. Mm -hmm. And so keep that in mind as we talk about the things that happened and you wonder how in the hell they got away with it. <laughs> yes. All right. So. Oh, I forgot one of the ways that spirits might communicate through mediums, and it's my favorite. Uh, telekinesis. Ooh. And now we cue Wonder Boy by Tenacious D, and everyone <laughs> shouts, that's yeah. telekinesis, Kyle. And then we move on. Yes. Um, if you aren't old enough to know what I'm talking about, look up Tenacious D and listen to the song Wonder Boy. Moving along. <laughs> The Spiritualist Church peaked in membership growth between the 1840s and the 1920s. So, <clears throat> Civil War in the U.S., um, World War One. Hmm. <clears throat> and it was I'm sensing a thread. Yes. It was led, generally speaking, by middle and upper class people because they had time to spend on shit like that. Unlike yeah. people who were working every moment of their lives just to get by. Mm -hmm. And so spiritualism itself is a religion and a religious movement based on the belief that spirits of the dead both exist and can and also want to communicate with the living. And in spiritualism, unlike in many forms of communication, or many ideas of communicating with the dead, um, in spiritualism it's believed that spirits after they die um, continue to evolve and grow and learn things and, like, basically continue to grow as humans, only, you know, disincarnate. And, <laughs> like you do. And so, because of that, it makes them 
inherently more advanced than humans and thereby qualifies them to give advice or predictions or even insight into the will of God. And so the spiritualist church is a God-fearing church. It's not like the Christian God is very much involved in the spiritualist church. (laughs) So it's, I think that um, in our Ouija board episode, we talked about how going to seances was both, or going to seances and then going to church the next morning was like totally normal, and nobody thought that was weird. This is why. Many leaders in this particular movement happened to be women. And because women were seen to be more sensitive to the other side. You know, feelings and shit. (laughs) Feelings and shit. That's right. Yeah. And therefore, the spiritualist movement itself also supported things that many progressive women at the time also supported. So the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage were Mm. regularly brought up topics within the inner workings of the spiritualist church, which I thought was kind of cool. That is really cool. It also makes sense because I'm guessing that most of the people that attended those were female as well. So it's probably one of the only... Not necessarily, actually. Mm -mm. Um. There were seances were extremely popular with men and at spiritualist services you might have a medium channeling. Like it huh. it might happen that someone has a message for you. And so <laughs> um I have never personally been to a spiritualist service although they definitely exist in and around where I live. And there happens to be an entire spiritualist community called Lilydale in um, northern New York. So at some point, that will be a very good field trip. And I have also been to a revivalist town um, to make lace. At one point. (laughs) So, um, but that was in Jersey. Um, So for a while at the beginning of spiritualism as a movement, it wasn't really a terribly organized thing. So the activities that were going on might include writing articles, or delivering lectures, or having camp meetings, um, (laughs) which, I mean, camp revivals have been a thing throughout much of uh, evangelical spiritualism, not spiritualist, but spiritualism broadly. Um, So that makes sense, especially for the time. And eventually they would 
form a formal spiritualist church and denominations thereof, but that came quite a while after the beginnings of the movement itself. And, of course, we cannot forget in the list of activities, seances. They did a lot of those. Yep. Lots of them. (laughs) All right. So, in the more formal layout of the spiritualist church, generally speaking, the core beliefs are that anyone can become a medium with proper study and practice. So this isn't limited to people who are naturally gifted or born with it. It's very much something that you can learn to do if you want to. And honestly, I have no idea if that is true. I know that practice makes it easier. And so it wouldn't surprise me if practice also could make it happen when it wasn't. I mean, once you open the door, it's kind of hard to (laughs) shut it again. So, um... Very true. Yeah. And so, in 1893, the National Spiritualist Association was founded, and in 1899, at one of their conventions, a Declaration of Principles was set out. And different denominations have different variations of these declarations of principles. Some have been added. It's it's an evolving it's, it's document. It's pretty standard. Yeah. Um, but the first one is, we believe in infinite intelligence. The second, we believe that the phenomena of nature, both physical and spiritual, are the expression of infinite intelligence. We affirm that a correct understanding of such expression and living in accordance therewith constitute true religion. We affirm the existence and personal identity of the individual continues after the change called death. We affirm that communication with the so-called dead is a fact scientifically proven by the phenomena of spiritualism. We believe that the highest morality is contained in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so the first six principles were adopted in that 1899. Um, And then principle six has since been revised <laughs> as recently as 2004 in Ronkonkoma, oh. New York. Okay, then. For reasons. Additional principles are we affirm the moral responsibility of the individual and that we make our own happiness or unhappiness as we obey or disobey nature's physical and spiritual laws. So this is really, really similar to witchcraft beliefs. Yeah. The 
whole idea of do well i guess wicca specifically is rooted in this but i think many many um witchcraft traditions have borrowed Mm -hmm. it but the um do what you will but do no harm yep um so i think that's interesting Another is we affirm that the doorway to reformation is never closed against any soul here or hereafter. That's super inclusive. It is. <laughs> that that came from, um, let's see, principles seven and eight that I just uh, read were adopted in Rochester, New York in 1909 and then were revised in... 2001 also in rochester i don't know why rochester but you know whatever you do you rochester (laughs) um okay and there is one more which is we affirm that the precept of prophecy and healing are divine attributes proven through mediumship And the ninth principle here was adopted in St. Louis, Missouri in 1944 and has been revised since in Oklahoma City in 1983 and Westfield, New Jersey in 1998. So there you have it, the Declaration of Principles. It was long, but I think it really gives you a picture of the belief system and who these people are as a group and how they're trying to present themselves, which I think is important gotcha. when you hear. Right. Well, it's to intent. Like you understand mm-hmm. the intent. Yes, exactly. And I think that's important when you're hearing stories that seem truly outlandish to you that A, special effects and movies didn't exist then so keep that in mind when you're wondering how certain things may have fooled certain people that their eyes aren't trained like ours are right to look for the artificial and so i think that plays a huge role in how many of these frauds were able to continue long-term because people simply were not expecting there to be the possibility of a special effect because they'd never heard of one. Makes so, sense. All right. So now I'm going to tell you a little more in depth about two examples of famous frauds and then a third who just needs to be mentioned... <laughs> Uh, Because of her technique, shall we say. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Yes. All right. So, start with the Fox sisters. So, somewhat interestingly, the credit for starting the entire spiritualist religious movement can be laid at the feet of Maggie Fox who was 14, and Kate Fox, who was 11, (laughs) of Hydesville, New York, on March 31st, 1848. Not 19, 1848. 
So there are lots of versions of this story and a lot of slight variations of detail. So I've put together as close of an overlapping account as I could find in multiple reasonably reputable sources. So just keep that in mind going forward. Totally got you. Yeah. So. I experienced the same. Yes. So the Fox sisters, Maggie and Kate, seemingly freaked out by what they described as a frightening and strange phenomenon, the girls apparently told a neighbor that they'd been hearing rapping on the walls and furniture, raps that seemed to have an otherworldly source. And so presumably, because not much was going on past sunset in Hydesville, New York, at bedtime... (laughs) Said neighbor marched on over to the Fox family farmhouse and parked it in the bedroom for some proof. (laughs) Like you do. Yeah. By this point, the girl's mother, Margaret, and father, John, had, it seemed, already nearly reached the end of their psychological rope due to the relentless and maddening knocks that had been echoing throughout the home each night from the moment their daughters went to bed. And so, depending on which source you're looking at, they were either deeply unsurprised when the aforementioned neighbor showed up, or the girl's mother thought it was demons and actually (laughs) had sent the father to get the neighbors. What the neighbors were going to do about demons, I'm a little (laughs) unclear on, but okay, whatever. Both seem plausible. Yes. But eventually, a group of flabbergasted neighbors slowly gathered in the bedroom of (laughs) these girls. And from what I, yeah, from what I understand, this was the family bedroom, so oh, everybody okay. slept there. Um, Time period that makes sense. Yeah, and the like their home, there are pictures of it. It's very small. It's mm-hmm. and it is very very time period accurate for everybody to have a room for sleeping. So it's not weird, even if it sounds weird. So, all of these neighbors who are now standing around (laughs) these little girls in their beds. That's how rumors get started. I'm just saying. Right. Um, Slowly got the story of a 31-year-old peddler who had been murdered and buried under the fox's home by someone who had lived there before them. Wow. Yeah, so conveniently, David, the girl's adult brother, happened to both be there and had come up with the idea of running through the alphabet to let the rapping spirit spell words. So that's how we got the story. Ah, yeah, so- and so... 
This feels to me like it probably happened over more than one night, but it does, <laughs> it does not. All I'm saying is that if all of this went down in one evening, it must have been a very long night. <laughs> all right. A connected rumor to this 31-year-old murdered peddler would eventually place David, the adult brother, digging under the house and finding human bones and teeth. I am... Oh. Yeah, apparently. I am unclear why he was digging under the house. Or how he got under the house to begin with. Maybe foundations didn't exist yet. I don't know. Yeah, it makes sense. Also, think of think of being like. I mean, there are crawl spaces, like crawling under porches. That is a thing, and that's still right, a thing. Right. I'm just imagine being pumped up on 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 excitement and adrenaline at a slumber party, and somebody's like, "There's a body under the house." You're like, "Let's go find it." <laughs> I, I think I the rumor would have us believe that this happened before the girls. Ah, okay. It certainly didn't exist before the girls started having their evening performances. But, (laughs) yes, 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 they're 14 and 11. Come now. Seriously. Um, (laughs) But, I'm sticking my foot in my mouth. So I'm going to take my foot out of my mouth to continue to say that in whatever order it happened, there was a connected rumor about David finding bones and teeth. Okay. But there's no actual evidence that there was ever a body, nor was there ever anyone in the surrounding area who could recall a missing peddler. So... Were there actual Who bones knows? and teeth? Not that I know of. Uh, Evans people. Yeah, I, I think that it was just a rumor. I suppose okay. it could be true that he found bones and teeth because much of this land was Native American land and oh. there's an awful lot of of construction going on on top of sacred spaces. I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that New York State was well occupied before white people came. Yes. So it wouldn't have been surprising to find an unmarked grave under a home. All right. So enter Leah the girl's adult sister who had heard the rumors of the haunting and showed up wanting to know what was up. (laughs) So I guess the rumor mill was pretty active because this happened rather quickly. And so Leah, having gotten a demonstration, she was a bit more worldly than the naive parents who had never really ventured away from home. So she was just like, nah. And (laughs) 
According to legend, eventually Maggie and Kate would admit that they had been cracking their toes and doing so (laughs) in contact with wooden surfaces to amplify the noise. And I would like you all to know that I tried that. (laughs) Because I wasn't really entirely sure why that would amplify the noise unless you had a completely empty room. So how how do you crack your... That's a lot of cracking. Right. And I mean, I just now cracked mine. Just then. But I don't think I could do it. That would hurt. Um, But anyway, I found zero indication that the sound was amplified. But I mean, maybe there's a bunch more stuff where I live. But I definitely live in a an apartment around the same time period. Anyway, so after they explained all of this to uh, Leah, so as the story goes, Leah saw dollar signs, apparently, in the toe cracking and moved <laughs> right and moved her sisters into a house in Rochester and began charging an entrance fee to their... I I don't think it was to their bedroom anymore. I think think (laughs) they were dressed these days. You can end up with all kinds of miscommunication on that one. I mean, there was a big audience, so I feel like their virtue (laughs) was probably safe. And they had a chaperone. Yeah, yeah, but word gets around that you got the whole town coming to visit you in your bedroom. and Well, they did. (laughs) (laughs) And word did get around. But, yeah. So, the girls would eventually be accused by some as frauds or heretics. But at least we were well past the witch-burning years at this point. Because... That definitely would have been the case. Yeah. You know, 150, 200 years before. So, like, that's generationally kind of creepily close to me. A little too close for comfort. So, in addition to being accused as frauds or heretics, a kidnapping attempt was also made by men who were apparently angry about what they were doing. So there wasn't any more detail on that, but it's pretty clear that it didn't work. So (laughs) soon the girls wanted out of the game, and they even went so far as having the spirits wrap out, we will now bid you farewell. And then they went silent for two weeks. Leah wanted that money, though. So the show went on. And also, on went the debunking and magical thinking. And also, the touring. So, they were once famously debunked in Buffalo when cushions were placed between their feet and the wooden stage. And 
they were just sitting up there and nothing was happening. <laughs> and Wonder why. of course, they responded by blaming the cynics in the audience for making the space unwelcome for the spirits and that only true believers would allow for it to happen anyway. So this wasn't debunking. This was just that you guys are jerks. Mm-hmm. So, all right, fine. And by this point, the idea of spiritualism and mediumship had already started to travel widely. So a thing that started out as two bored little girls (laughs) had already gotten way out of hand. Like, there were mediums in New York City. Like, it was a whole thing. And... It took its toll on the Fox sisters in many ways, but it also paved the way for a freedom of movement within society and an opportunity to gain wealth that women hadn't known before. And so that's a really interesting part to think about when you're thinking about how most mediums were women. Yeah. And... There weren't many ways for women to either advance their place in society or to actually make an income that they could support themselves on. And apparently, Leah, the sister, had been a single mother. And so, like, that just would have made her largely untouchable. And wow. very poor. And so I I can see why she'd see dollar signs and then make her little sisters perform. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. I get that. And I, I just think that, that it's interesting that the creativity of women was what allowed both the spectacle and also the subsequent religion. So. If we just harnessed the power of teen slash tween girls. Oh my goodness. The power, the sheer power. And the aw-fucking-dacity. Well, and, and that's true. I mean, if you were to give me a selection of groups that I would not want to tangle with. It is teen and tween girls because seriously they are creative and fearless and don't care what you like. <laughs> and I yeah. love that. Uh, yep. Yeah. Teen girls are villainized so much, but they are absolutely awesome and they make people a lot of money so people should (laughs) fuck right off with that yep yes anyway moving on from teen girls being a force of nature (laughs) next we're going to visit helen duncan who was a scottish medium and happened to be the last person to be imprisoned under the witchcraft act of 1735 um, and this was in, wait, I don't actually know where it's in, U.S. or Britain? Britain. Um, so yes, a great 
British law. And she was specifically known for physical mediumship and producing ectoplasm. Now, ectoplasm is going to come up a lot (laughs) in the coming stories, so prepare yourself. So, ectoplasm from one of Duncan's early seances had been secured and provided to a researcher named Harry Price of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. And they come up an awful lot in research in and around debunking mediums and also magicians and all sorts of things like that. So pretty much anywhere you find a story about a medium, you will find them or the American counterpart. Gotcha. All right. So when this first bit of ectoplasm was tested, it was found to be egg whites mixed with chemicals. I do not know what chemicals means here. I hope it wasn't radium. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Harry Price was able to reproduce it in laboratory tests. Gotcha. Yeah. But apparently that did not matter so much. As she continued on, and she would then produce a substance called teleplasm. Okay. Which was paper soaked in egg white stuffed down her esophagus. Oh, that does not sound comfortable at all. Now, well, it was rolled into a tube. Yeah. And so, from what I can tell, and someone send me an email if I'm wrong about this, but ectoplasm seems to be, like, gauzy, ethereally, and, yeah, and... Uh, teleplasm seems to be more energy specific and like less ethereal looking. Makes sense. So like if there is a beam of energy coming out of your mouth as opposed to paper soaked in egg white. There you go. So that is my understanding. I get the egg white choice. I get it. Yep. And so she would also be known for using many, many other items as ectoplasm. And once well being researched by the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, she was asked to be x-rayed she pitched a holy fucking fit and this was a large woman and she couldn't be moved by the dinky little researchers Mm. and so she 
went outside the lab, latched onto a railing, and just lost her shit. Wow. And her husband came out to calm her down, and they were able to get her back into the lab where she immediately demanded to be x-rayed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and so they were like, uh, so, to her husband, you want to turn out your pockets? And he was <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we can all guess what happened there. All right, so... It's a little suspicious. Doesn't it, though? And she's very lucky that she was not a small woman because um, an ambulance could not take her away. And this was at a time where women were still forcibly committed. Ugh. So I'm just thinking about that and how glad I am that they couldn't take her. Yeah, that would have been a that would have been a trip to lobotomy town easily. Well, she was already sticking things where they didn't belong. That is a bad <laughs> joke and I don't mean it. Frontal lobotomies are cruel and fucked up medicine. Cru- Absolutely. Yeah. And are still performed today, but that is a very different kind of performance than yeah. it once was. Stake through the eyeball. Uh, hook. That's why I was talking yeah. about crochet hooks oh, that's earlier. True. Um, anyway, that is unnecessary. <laughs> 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 All right. So in 1928, um, a photographer named Harry Metcalf attended a series of seances and took photos of Duncan's materializations and also of Peggy, her spirit guide. And this is a very common thing amongst spiritualist mediums. There is almost always a spirit guide of some sort that always shows up. And this also happens in, um, like, Ouija board use Mm -hmm. often. And so those photos revealed that the ectoplasm and materializations and ghostly apparitions and also Peggy were a painted papier-mâché mask, an old sheet, cheesecloth, and also photos cut out of magazines. Huh. No egg? No egg ways? I'm... uh, Well, I mean, somehow the photo had to stick to that cheesecloth. That's true. And egg paste is a thing. So, I don't know. Pretty much all of her visual frauds were created with 
ectoplasm, cheesecloth, magazine clippings, rubber gloves, masks, and sheets. And every once in a while, a hanger, like a coat hanger. Oh, okay. You know, just for fun. But there still might have been something to her otherworldly talents. She might have been a very bad medium, but she may have actually been a pretty talented psychic. Um, Ah. So growing up, she had done a lot of uncanny things or said a lot of uncanny things that she just shouldn't have or couldn't have known about. Mm-hmm. And during one of her seances, she happened to correctly report the sinking of the HMS Barham uh, in 1941, which was being kept a secret by the war office because oh, wow. it was in the middle of World War II and mm-hmm. giving away positions would have been extremely dangerous. Yes. And so, apparently, one of, either a wife or a girlfriend of one of the sailors who was on that ship called the Mm -hmm. war office, and it was confirmed that, in fact, that ship had sunk and that, in fact, it was not publicly released information. Wow. And, I mean... I will say that if girlfriend could just call up and ask the war office, probably anybody could have just called up and asked the war office. So there were ways that you could get that information. But it is interesting. I don't know that I would have thought of that, of that being so readily, that information being so readily given out. Yeah, I, well... I mean, there is all of the loose lips sink ships and, like, mm-hmm. all of the things. And that may have been World War One. I'm not sure, actually. But there were information. Sounds right. There were information blackouts and, yeah. like, and news blackouts. So you would have known at the time that you didn't know what was going on and that you wanted to. So. True. It would have been very much on people's minds that they did not have the news that they were craving access to. So, anyway, soon after that, she was arrested while impersonating a manifestation by covering herself in a white shroud. There were undercover police in the audience. Mm. And she was imprisoned then for nine months under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. And she was the last person to be convicted under that law. And now, speaking of ectoplasm, (laughs) you might also want to look up Marjorie Crandon. Who had... Marjorie. Yeah. Who had an alternate location for storing ectoplasm and her ectoplasm was generally speaking animal parts not cheesecloth and instead of being stored in the esophagus 
it was stored in the vagina. Her front lady pocket. Yeah. So, Marjorie Crandon had ghosts in her vagina. I would just like to to let you sit with that for a moment. Um, anyway, there are photos of that. So... Oh, her vagina? No, well, no, they don't show her vagina, but they show what oh. came out of it and her was like, in position. Woo. So it's oh. it's oh connected my. to her at the time. That's, so th- that's there is a scandalous. photo of a thing that is presumably attached to her, her. vaginal canal at that time. Wow. It, it, it's a, a paw or a hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nope. No. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just gonna leave that one alone. And yeah. So I I just needed to bring up Marjorie Crandon. There are so many mediums who were doing so many creative weird things at the time that it's very very hard to like you couldn't um, cover them all. On some level, you gotta be like bless them for trying. A yeah. for effort. A for effort, indeed. And so now I'm just going to do a quick rundown of the additional tools that would be inside the fraudulent mediums cabinet. And I actually learned something from this research that I didn't know. I thought spirit cabinets were way more common than they were. Mm. And I thought that they were used in a very different way than they were. So Ira and William Davenport were two brothers who invented the use of the spirit cabinet. And it was a rectangular box that sat atop two sawhorses so the audience could see underneath it. Okay. Um, so as to prove that they weren't doing right. anything. And so they would in many different incarnations be tied into, nailed into the box or seats within the box and between them there would be a bunch of musical instruments that they couldn't reach and a member of the audience would be doing the tying. I did not find anywhere um, that said whether or not that audience member was a plant. Okay. But... They, the cabinet would get closed up and all of these noises from these musical instruments would happen and then someone would open the cabinet and they would still be sitting there tied up. So, so that was the thing. It was cracking toes. <laughs> I, I have no idea. And um, Anna Ava Faye was another medium, and she first used the curtained spirit cabinet, which is probably what everyone is picturing when they are picturing a spirit cabinet. And she used it in a way where she physically... I believe through her garments, was nailed in place to a chair that was nailed in place to the cabinet, and in front of her there would be a table that was also nailed in place with a bunch of musical instruments and stuff on it. 
So basically the same idea. Hmm. I had personally thought that um, spirit cabinets were used way more for like the ectoplasm variety of sleight of hand. But that seems to not have been the case. And so if you were a fraudulent medium in the spiritualist movement era, you would also, in addition to a possible spirit cabinet, you would also have table turning, also known as table tapping, table tipping, and table tilting, in your back pocket. How that works, and you can do it now, show your friends. Um, (laughs) Hands of a group of people, so the audience would be placed on all around the table. Uh, And the alphabet would be spoken aloud by someone, and the table itself would tilt at an appropriate letter. Um, in the Ouija board episode, I mentioned the idiomotor effect. Yes. That is one of the ways that this could work. So, micro-movements of muscles of people who don't know they're moving and so people who are honestly not trying to be fraudulent right but their muscles are moving anyway and so if it wasn't the idiomotor effect it could be several varieties of trickery so in an ideal successful table turning, the table would spin, tip, or even rise into the air. This could be managed, specifically the the tipping or rising into the air, with a pin nailed into the table and a slotted ring. Hmm. Now that sounds like it would hurt a lot. I hope that table was really light, because if you're trying to pick it up, I, that, mm-mm, that would break a finger. So, I'm not into that, but there are illustrations <laughs> of how that was done. I expect that that was more useful in the tipping variety of this than the lifting. But who knows? That's a whole lot of work. Right? And so, another common way to do this was for the medium to slide their hands back far enough that their thumbs would press on the edge of the table, thereby making their arms into levers that were strong enough but subtle enough and controlled enough to tip the table while not obviously doing so. So, that is that is another way. Also, a medium might wait for someone to move the table and then slip their shoe under the table leg. So, it could be someone purposefully moving the table or the idiomotor effect. It didn't really matter. Just as long as you can get a right. shoe under there. And then it would become, obviously, very easy for you to control the movement of that table. <laughs> 
you also might catch the table with your knee and hold it up, move it around. I don't know. I'm really short. It has never been possible for me <laughs> to catch a table with my knee. I was knee. like, that's just a whole lot of effort. And I feel like my face would totally give away my concentration of trying right? to just maneuver this friggin' table. Yep. To say something my, coherently. <laughs> exactly. My favorite part, though, is just literally kicking the table into the air. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to see that go down, honestly. That it's sounds like ballsy. it sounds dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like just there w- should the be... Just eat fucking table. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured that there should be stories... Uh, of injuries, but I I didn't see them. All right, so you already know all about the regurgitating cheesecloth and paper and egg whites, etc., for ectoplasm. So that's another tool in your fraudulent medium cabinet. Uh, Using masks and sheets and gauzy fabrics and also magazine clippings were all very common because in flickering candlelight or mostly dark, those surfaces would reflect what little light there was and they would look like they were glowing. And so they would look significantly more ethereal than, say, the photos that were taken to debunk Duncan mm. would look. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at those photos, which there will be a link to them in the show notes, you will probably wonder how in the hell anyone ever thought right. those were real. But as a person who has come across my dress form, pinned with a muslin standing in my work area at like three o'clock in the morning getting up to go to the bathroom and not having turned a light on the muslin was white i saw a full-bodied apparition standing in the middle of my apartment that happened to be my dress form and i was but it's positive right because it's enough physical structure to give you you're there because you want to believe yeah well and it's so also it gives you the para, pareidolia isn't that what what it's called when uh, the human mind wants to fit together patterns yes. and make something recognizable and that's why you see faces in places yeah. that you shouldn't see faces or where they don't exist uh, that happens to me a lot anyway so <laughs> Just keep that in mind when you are looking at those photos and judging as harshly as you will want to judge. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And one more thing that I found that was definitely used, and there there are so many things that were used. Contraptions strapped to legs under skirts have been rumored. Um, Like sliding panels of doors... And people's doors yeah, are my favorite. People's small children <laughs> hiding under skirts 
Like, there are lots of stories about ways that fraud could be perpetrated, especially by high-end mediums. Yeah. But um, there are relatively few truly proven examples of the mechanized workings of a medium who was not just using her body in some way. And so um, throwing flour was apparently also a thing (laughs) that you might do. But it was also a thing that you might use to prove that nobody had moved. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, there are so many stories and so much fiction that has sort of bled into the reality. So, like, you think of, like, the very steampunk idea of, like I said, panels and walls switching Mm -hmm. and moving and lamps being on pulleys and all sorts of different ways that sound might be moved around because all of that can be done mechanically. It's not even hard to do it mechanically. I could do it. You could do it. Um, But hiding the mechanics. But yes. But uh, I mean, you would have to be a pretty talented cabinet maker to be able to do that and you would have to keep the secret so you'd probably have to be married to the person who was doing it or have some financial stake um but definitely children hiding under skirts probably happened quite a lot dude and children are not reliable sources and they don't often listen so that's a that's a gamble right there it is a gamble, but children of that time, like when you're in a seen not heard time period, yeah, I don't know, like they're probably easily bribed at that point too. If my mom told me to stand somewhere and be quiet in the eighties, I was gonna stand there and be quiet because I was gonna get mm-hmm. in trouble. Like there was no allowance for me being a fidgety child. No, no, no. I was expected to just be able to handle that. And so I did. And not that my mom did that very often, but like in church or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in the church. Isn't that delightful? (laughs) Uh, Baptist church, in fact. Yeah. So that is... Just an overview of your toolkit, your possibly factual or fictional additions to your toolkit, and a couple of people who used them badly. (laughs) They chose poorly. I mean, in fairness, though, the Fox sisters actually were pretty good at it. And they were so young. So young. Yeah. Yeah. They were, and they so did not want to, but gotta get that money. 
Right? Mm-hmm. I have other young ladies to speak of. Oh, do tell. Yes. Today, I'm going to talk about the Catlingley Fairies. So, in the summer of 1917, nine-year-old Frances Griffiths returned to England from South Africa to stay with the Wright family in Catlingley, West Yorkshire. Because colonialism. Right? While her father was fighting in the war. Now, next to... The house where Polly and Arthur Wright and their 16-year-old daughter, Elsie, lived was a small woody valley through which the Cotlingley Beck flowed. If you don't know what a Beck is, it's like a mountain stream. Huh. Uh, so Elsie and her cousin Frances were about to make that valley pretty freaking famous. So it quickly became like a favorite spot for the cousins to like go hang out and, you know, run amok. It also... Um, amuck, amuck, amuck. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, they also regularly got into trouble from playing down there because they would come home, like, wet and messy uh, just from playing in and around the bed. Kind of like uh, my kittens every time they go into the bathroom. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, so That's on, the sink, just to be clear, <laughs> not the toilet. <laughs> On one of the occasions they were being scolded, they declared the mess was from playing with fairies. Um, before Uh-oh. I continue, <laughs> before I continue, let me remind you of a very, it's got to be in the top five of our rules. Don't fuck with the fairies. I think it might Just, be number one. It, it should I don't be. know if we've given another one number one status before, but I'm fairly certain this I, I'm thinking that one needs to go number one. Yep. So Elsie's father, Arthur, immediately declared bullshit. Uh, Having teen daughters, I totally get this entire chain of events now. So (laughs) Elise, Elise, who is very much like my youngest, not only heard what her father said, but then doubled the fuck down and was like, hey, give me your camera. I'll go prove it. So off they went. Right? So off they went with her father's midge quarter plate camera and sheer determination. A quarter plate camera? Like, that's, uh, that requires some skill. Right. Uh, Yeah, he was actually, yeah, I'll get to that in just a bit. But, uh, yeah, so there is very, it's really interesting because I found uh, the ages mixed up a bit. Um, and I also found like how long they were gone to be variant. So anywhere after anywhere from less than a half an hour to about an hour, uh, depending on what source you read, they return back with a camera and a smirk. Now, Elsie's father, Arthur, was a keen amateur photographer and he had his own dark room. Mm-hmm. And the equipment to, that required to develop the plates the girls had just taken. What emerged from that dark room is now a very famous image of young Francis, head tilted slightly, gazing off while several winged fairy figurines dance. Yep. Uh, it is said that uh, Elsie had an interest in photography herself and a talent for art and experience in retouching photographs. 
So her dad, super suspicious of this. The photos continued. Eventually, there'll be five of them. But even when the girls came back in September then with an impressive plate that showed Elsie holding out her hand to a gnome-like wing figure, Arthur was still unconvinced. At this point, this is photo number two. He knew the girls had been up to something. He just really wasn't sure how they were doing it. And the most likely explanation that seemed to him was that they were using cutout figurines. Yeah. Arthur's instincts were right, but it would be decades before this was con- confirmed. So let's talk about these photos. Um, so we've got the first photo already taken. Uh, the name of that photo is Francis and the Fairy. Mm-hmm. And as mentioned, it was taken in July of 1917. <clears throat> uh, I touched briefly on the second one named Elsie and the Gnome, and that was taken in September of 1917. And in this photo, and I quote, Elsie was playing with the Gnome and beckoning it to, to, come, on, to come onto her knee. The Gnome leapt up just as Francis, who had the camera, snapped the shutter. He is described as wearing black tights, a reddish jersey, and a pointed red cap. Elsie said there is no perceptible weight, though, when on the bare hand, the feeling is like a little breath. The wings were more than more moth-like than the fairies and of a soft, neutral tint. Elsie explained that what seemed to be markings on his wings were simply his pipes, which he was swimming, swinging from his grotesque little left hand that is a direct quote from 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 our from our gal here uh and i just want to say that um uh who uh, don't fuck with the fae and i firmly believe that it could have been quite handsome or lovely left hand i am not judging the hand i am quite certain i'm looking at the photo right now and it it looks lovely to me lovely yeah uh so photo number three Uh, is Francis and the Leaping Fairy. Now, that one's taken uh, August of 1920, and in a minute I'll get to uh, what occurs between the space and these photos because we're talking a couple years at this point. Um, This camera was a Cameo Quarter. Again, the prior two were taken using Arthur's Midge Quarter. This one is... uh, We'll find the source in a bit. Uh, So... According to Elise, the fairy is leaping up from the leaves below and hovering for a moment. It had done so three or four times, rising a little higher than before. Francis thought it would touch her face and involuntarily tossed her head back. The fairy's light covering appears to be close-fitting, and the wings were lavender in color. Photo number four. Of course, all these are black and white photos, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, photo number four is fairy offering a posy to Elsie. I, I, her name is Elsie, and then it's also Elise in some places. So I think I just keep switching back and forth on that. But E, we're gonna call her E. Uh, taken August nineteen twenty. Again, the camera's the cameo quarter. Uh, the fairy is standing almost still, poised at the on the bush leaves. The wings were shot with yellow. An interesting point is shown in this photograph. Elsie is not looking directly at the sprite. The reason seems to be that the human eye is, eye is disconcerting. If the fairy be actively moving, it does not matter much. But if motionless and aware of being gazed at, then the nature spirit will usually withdraw and apparently vanish. With fairy lovers, the habit of looking at first a little sideways is common. 
And finally, I we like have that photo fairy- too. It's pretty. I do. I do too. Uh, and then finally, we have fairies and their sunbath. This was taken August of 1920. Again, camera cameo quarter. This is especially remarkable as it contains a feature quite unknown to the girls. The sheath or cocoon appearing in the middle of the grasses had not been seen by them before, and they had no idea what it was. Fairy observers of Scotland and the New Forest, however, were familiar with it and described it as a magnetic bath, woven very quickly by the fairies and used to dull weather, or used after dull weather in the autumn especially. The interior seems to be magnetized in some manner that stimulates and pleases. Oh. So, right? That that could, could take a different turn quickly. Uh, so, how did all these photos become so cussing famous? Uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, Arthur called all this friggin' rubbish from the beginning. Uh, but he let them indulge in it. Elsie's mom, Polly, on the other hand, had an avid interest in the supernatural and, as part of her religion, theosophy believed in fairies. Ah. She believed the photos and the girls and took them with her to a lecture on fairy life. Um, which, part of me wants to go to that lecture and part of me wants to stay really far away. Do you know <laughs> how many times you have frozen during this story? Uh-uh. A lot. Have I frozen? Oh, no. <laughs> I said I'm not fucking with you, Faye. You're amazing. I love you. Uh, that evening speaker made arrangements to display them at an annual conference on the topic of fairies and a few a few months later. It was at that conference that another theosophist, Edward Gardner, discovered them and then because act- and became actively promoting them as evidence that fairies were real. I wonder if he's related to Gerard. <laughs> <laughs> right? So Gardner was one of the leading members of the Theosophy Society, and he saw that photo as a sign of humanity's evolution to perfection, a core belief in Theosophy. Convinced by these first two photographs, it was Gardner that urged the girls to continue to take more. Uh, shit got even more real when the famous Sir Arthur Conan Doyle noticed them and then published them... Uh, in the 1920 issue of The Strand, huh. Doyle had written to Elise and her father requesting permission to use them in the magazine article. Hmm. So Arthur agreed with the strict stipulation that there being no payment so people would not think that there was a motivation of money for the girls to fake the photos. Issues sold out within days of publication. To protect the girls' anonymity, Francis and Elsie, or Elise, uh, were called Alice and Iris, respectively, and the Wright family was referred to as the Carpenters. Uh, an enthusiastic and committed spiritualist, Doyle hoped that if the photographs convinced the public of the existence of fairies, then they might be more readily accept other psychic phenomena as well. It's true. In fact, Conan Doyle remained a devout believer in their photos and the dwellers at the border up until his death in July of 1930. He ended his article in the stand with the following words. The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is glamour and mystery to life. 
Having discovered this, the world will not find it so difficult to accept that spiritual message supported by the physical facts, which has already been put forth before it. So reactions to the photos, super mixed. Uh, my, fa my favorite, perhaps, is the historical novelist and poet Morris Hewlett, mm -hmm. who published a series of articles in the literary journal John O'London's Weekly, which he concluded, and knowing children, and knowing that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has legs, I decide that the Miss Carpenters have pulled one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did not think that was where that was going. That is significantly more wholesome than I am. Okay. It was, I think it's delightful. So on the other hand, contrarily, you have the novelist Henry DeVere Stockhool. I'm not sure exactly on that pronunciation. I really tried to find it. He's best known probably for writing The Blue Lagoon, which was later made into the movie The Blue Lagoon. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Henry decided to take the fairy photographs and the girls at face value. And in a letter to Gardner, he wrote... Look at Alice's face. Look at Iris's face. There is an extraordinary thing called truth, which has 10 million faces and forms. It is God's currency, and the cleverest coiner or forger can't imitate it. Uh, Doyle used the later <laughs> photographs. That's a lot of fancy words for, I believe them. But uh, Doyle used the later photographs in 1921 to illustrate a second article in the Strand, in which he described other accounts of fairy sightings. The article formed the foundation for his 1922 book, The Coming of the Fairies. Um, I actually link in the show notes uh, the written copy of the book and an audio copy of the book. Both are free and public access. Um, cool. Should you want to check that out. But as before, the photographs were received with mixed credulity, uh, skeptics noted that the fairies looked suspiciously like the traditional fairies of the nursery tales and that they've had very fashionable hairstyles. Um, well. <laughs> which I'm just saying, they can have fashionable hairstyles if they want I them. would think that they would. I'm just Why saying. Why wouldn't they? Exactly. Uh, so Edward Gardner made a final visit to Cotlingy in August of 1921. He brought a, he again brought two cameras and so it's a cameo. That's where the cameo came in and, and other photographic supplies with him was Jeffrey Hodson, who claimed to be a clairvoyant, although neither of the girls claimed to see any fairies when they ventured out and there were no more photographs. On the contrary, Hudson said that he saw fairies everywhere and he wrote voluminous notes on his observations. Well, uh, and some people do see right? them. Uh, so public interest in the Cottonley fairies was quite substantial in the months immediately following the publication of Conan Doyle's article. But by tw 1921, the general public's interest had began to wane. Uh, Elsie and Francis also began to tire of what they called the fairy business. They uh -huh. both married and left England, and it seemed as if there was, like, might not be an answer to the question of whether uh, the photos were real or faked, or m more accurately, like, how they were. 
uh, and no solid conclusions have been reached about the authenticity of the then famous photographs until the 1980s. Oh. In 1981, uh, because they were both alive in the 80s still. Huh. Uh, In 1981, Elsie Wright confessed to Jill Cooper, who interviewed her for The Unexplained magazine, that the fairies were, in fact, paper cutouts. She explained that she'd sketched the fairies using Princess Mary's gift book as an inspiration. She had then made paper cutouts from these sketches, which she held in place with hat pins. And in the second photo of Elsie and the gnome, the tip of a hat pin can actually be seen in the middle of the creature. Doyle had seen this dot, but interpreted it as the creature's belly button, leading him to argue that fairies gave birth just like humans. Francis also admitted to the hoax, but has always maintained that that final photograph is actually real. Uh, Both Elsie and Francis insisted that despite the faked photos, there were real fairies around the Cotlingley Beck, and they used to play with them as children. So why did it take so long for the Cottonley fairies hooks to be debunked? Many believers were duped simply because they thought that the children looked like they were telling the truth. It had been speculated that the public were happy to believe the photograph's legitimacy because it provided a much-needed return to innocence during the First World War. Conan Doyle's own son was a victim of the war. In 1917, one year shy of the end of the Great War, the public willingly accepted the story to escape the everyday horrors that usually made up the news. The horrific reality of the 1914 to 1918 war would have left people desperate for a different world, a world where there still might be the possibility of magic. So fairies provided a very welcome distraction and a return to innocence in a time of like shocking global violence. Yeah. So I can absolutely her- see. I mean, it's not dissimilar to the resurgence of witchcraft use today. Right. Mm-hmm. So the uh, perhaps their photographs and the harmless uh, dwellers at the borders was simply what the public needed most at this time. Also, and Joe Cooper is, is hot. Is he? I will have to. <laughs> I will check him uh, out. Joe Cooper, uh, young, like of the 40s, or probably, <laughs> is what I'm talking about. She's like, not right now. Back then? I don't know. Sure. I mean, I assume that Joe Cooper right now is a corpse. It's possible. Yeah. But yeah. So that is how uh, yet another team of uh, young ladies <laughs> changed a whole lot of stuff. So, yeah. Well, right. if you listen to our Patreon, you'll find out how they might have participating in the feud between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Houdini. Uh, because that that is a thing. That is a thing that happens in the world. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. So, I believe that brings us to the weekly worst way to die. Oh, uh, I'm on the wrong page again. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, I definitely have one. Do you have one? Oh yeah. All right, what's yours? Do not f- fucking with the fang. <laughs> <laughs> I, I period. 
I cannot disagree, and I'm already going to concede right here and now because I think you're right. But my second place here is going to be choking on ectoplasm. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Yes. Oh, that, that, ugh. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, hard pass. And that would be something that would happen to me. If I tried to pull that off, I would I would choke to death on like the tube. It would be Yeah. And then the fairies would, you know. Yeah, seek I, revenge. I do know. <laughs> yeah. Um I'm going to send you right now a link to that photo because you need to see it right now. Right now. Yes, right now. I mean, this does not have to be in the actual show, but just scroll down a little. It's taking a bit to pull up. Oh, I never, I didn't read this one. Okay, so I'm scrolling down for images, correct? Uh huh. Oh, hey. How are you doing, Joe Cooper? Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> Isn't he like this. the quintessential look of the era? Yes, that jacket. Yes. That smoke dangling from his lips and his slick back And the tide just yes. right. Oh, just right. That's a fine looking man, Joe Cooper. And his name is Joe Cooper. Like, that is the most generic man, man name that I can think of. I'd have talked if he asked me questions. I'm just saying. Hey, do you want to be spooky internet friends? Uh, we are bones. why not <laughs> we are bones and bobbins on instagram facebook twitter and pinterest you can also find us over at www.bonesandbobbins.com <laughs> and don't forget to rate and review this podcast seriously it pleases the internet gremlins and possibly the fae, I don't know. And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls like you can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! Hmm. <laughs> yep. That's about right. <laughs> and on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Don't fuck with the fae. <laughs> Lock your doors. <laughs> and don't run with scissors. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.